0: Today's episode is sponsored by Feather. Feather provides digital marketing tools and strategies for nonprofits of all shapes and sizes, including the Humane Society of North Central Florida. Stick around for the break to hear how Feather powered their $300 digital ad campaign that raised nearly $6,000 in just one day. Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast.
1: Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world.
0: We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising.
1: So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world.
0: So let's get started. Yo, Becky, what's happening? Hi,
1: John. I am like warning everybody, I'm doing an unorthodox intro today because I am so flabbergasted and in love with our guests today and their mission. We've had several conversations this season about our foster kids, our youth in care, and we want to continue that conversation today. And while we've had two others, um, today we're actually speaking with a founder and a CEO and an individual who has lived this journey. And I'm just so excited to introduce the community to Sixto Cancel. He is the founder and CEO of Think of Us. And what Think of Us is doing to transfer the child welfare system to a center-lived experience is one of the most aspirational nonprofits that I've seen that is so forward-thinking. And the thing that I love the most about them, and I hope you see this threaded in our conversation, is they're not talking heads. They are going straight to the source, straight to the child, and they are listening. And we talk so much about the value of listening in our jobs as fundraisers, as community builders, as world changers, and what they've been able to amass and glean and change as a result of this is just absolutely inspirational. So I just have to like brag on Sixto for a second because he's got a million different honors and awards that he's gotten (laughs) from Forbes 30 Under 30, Social Entrepreneurs. He's a White House Champion of Change, Millennial Maker by BET. I mean, the list goes on and on. We're about to have an incredible conversation with a passionate human. Sixto, thanks for coming on the podcast. We're a little excited you're here.
2: Um, Becca and John, I'm so glad to be here. And I could, uh, I definitely feel the excitement. And so super <laughs> excited to be here with y'all in the community.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, I we obviously have to start at the beginning. And I would love for you to just Tell us about Little Sixto. Tell us about your journey um, in your life growing up and really leading you to today.
2: Yeah, you know, Becky, when I think about my story, I even think that it starts way beyond me when I think about my biological mother, who at the age of 12, when she revealed that she was being sexually abused, um, her mother found the solution was to abandon her in order for her, the other kids in her to be able to survive and have you know, a place to eat and a place to stay. And so between 12 and 21, my biological mother was homeless um, and living on the streets. And it wasn't until 21 where she was back in an apartment. So by the time I was born, you know, five years later from that point, um, I found myself in foster care because as a baby, it was poverty and it was her addiction that didn't allow her to care for us. Um, And eventually at the age of nine, I was adopted. But That adoption was pretty abusive, and I experienced a lot of racism within it, and then ended up actually um, finding myself couch surfing at the age of 13. And so it took a little bit of me having to record the abuse. It took me having to journal it, engaging my teachers to really gather the evidence that I needed to reenter foster care at 15, and then aged out eventually um, by the time I was 23.
0: I mean... (laughs) Thanks for taking us there, my friend. Um, I'm so sorry that that has been your experience. Like it's, you know, we have both Becky and I both have young kids and I just, I think it's um, really a problem that there is such a expectation that the kid has to be an advocate for yourself. And you had to do that at such a young age and we need a system that's going to support and uplift and everybody to get around this issue to our most vulnerable population and I think thank you for channeling that and I know you have to go back into the recesses of painful times to do that and so it means a lot that you're willing to go there so you can help shepherd us closer to this work um, so much so I mean I want to hear what's next you know you aged out I think at 23 right Um, what happened next in your journey you know this founding of this organization seems insurmountable to me from how, where you started from, what was that next few steps like?
2: Yeah. So I'll go back to the moment I was 15 and I was at the bus stop and it was one of the moments where I had truly hit a low, low. And back then we had MP3 players um, and on it, I would listen to my gospel music. And so I just remember praying that you know, all of this kind of pain, the 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 journey um, that I was experiencing at that moment, the abuse, the scars, I was just like, you know, all of this has to mean something. And it was at that moment when I finally got back into um, the system, when I finally was at that bus stop, that I had made that prayer that, you know, I would actually lean into making sure that the system was different and that I would work on how is it that I can work on answers to the th- things that I was praying about. And so I fell in love with systems. Um, and how do these systems influence our lives? How do these policies dictate where what we can do and can't do, um, especially in the foster care system? And so I um, got involved with the Youth Board, um, got involved with the NAACP at the time, And it was at the youth board where I was able to learn what it means to engage at the state level with the state commissioner of the child welfare system and bring recommendations towards them and start new programs. And so by the time I was 18, um, I had got picked up by the Annie Casey Foundation and became a fellow with Jim Casey Youth Opportunity Initiative. And this was instrumental because it wasn't just about sharing a story, but it was about understanding how the system financed. What is the goal of the system? How is the system structured? How do you make recommendations? And truly just um, fell in love with how we were able to start thinking through how programs got implemented in 17 different states around match savings. How is it that you enable opportunities for young people to be able to build skills that made themselves sufficient? And then I hit this point where I felt like I just wasn't doing enough (laughs) when I was around 21. And it was because I went to the Clinton Global Initiative University where a thousand students come from all over the world um, and you had to solve a problem in one year. And what was so crazy to me is at that point, I thought I was doing it like, you know, I have been in Capitol Hills. I have been in multiple states. I was on panels. We were keynoting a lot. And I get into this room. And I asked people, oh, hey, what's your commitment to action, which is the purpose of being there? What's your action for the year? And people were describing projects that they had had that had such strong results. There was this one young man who literally invented a plastic polymer so that he could invent some type of wheelbarrow that would carry water um, so that his, his younger sister could go to the river in the morning, wheel to the river, bring it back, and be on time for school. And that way... He could increase the uh, literacy rate of his community, the woman in his community, but also his sister, because there was a cultural norm that women had to take care of the household first, and it just taught me what it meant to have results. And I saw results over and over and over, and that's why I launched Think of Us, because I knew that this wasn't just about pointing to the problem, but it's about figuring out how do we actually create solutions and redesign some of the pieces of child welfare? How do you re-architect it?
1: I mean, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around the fact that you're 15 and you have this awakening. And I I cannot imagine having the level of wisdom and wherewithal at that age to say, I have a choice here. I can lean into this and make it better, or I can just continue to grind on. And what I think is just so powerful about what you're saying is, is the action piece. The two things that are lifting for me is the lived experience and the action part of that. And the fact that you were so precocious and aware to go into the structures and to look at the architecture and the funding models, even at such a young age, is just really mind-boggling. You know, we met back in January and and we had like a quick little Zoom call. And I want to talk about a concept that you introduced me to called kinship care. And I want you to talk a little bit about um, this New York Times op-ed that you wrote that, by the way, I've sent to at least seven people after I read it. It's very powerful. Um, And the title of this op-ed says, I will never forget that I could have lived with people who loved me. So that just hit me in the gut, Sixto. And I want you to talk a little bit just about kinship care and how to get access, you know, and the ability to create a legal family. Please talk about your lived experience and what Think of Us is doing in that vein, and then we'll dive into your organization.
2: Absolutely. So, um, you know, just... About two, three years ago, I was in New York City um, visiting and I get a phone call from my sister who lives there and she says, hey, there's a family reunion today. Would you like to go? And the answer is absolutely. And it was one of those moments that felt so surreal because it was so random. And, um, you know, my family is from Puerto Rico. And so there was a lot of people who had came and who were there from Puerto Rico also. And then another other part of my family lives in Spanish Harlem. In New York City. And so we ended up in Spanish Harlem, walking through the park. And as Puerto Ricans become in all shapes and sizes, you know, I'm an Afro Latino, so I'm very dark skinned, while um, some of my family members are very light skinned. Um, and as we're walking through, it's kind of difficult to kind of pick which, who was your family because we come in so many shades. And I finally get. I love to- that. <laughs> we finally get to uh, you know the, par- the 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 part of the park where my family is having uh, this barbecue and it was very surreal because a lot of people didn't know i was coming and so but immediately because i looked just like my father who ended up passing away um in in in, in the 2000s um and we had the same birth he passed away on my birthday um and so there was this moment i walk in and immediately you can tell that my father's brothers and sisters were in shock and some of them had no idea it was coming. So it was a very, you know, intense emotional moment. And as I was there taking it all in and feeling so weird that people look like me um, because all my life I have been with people who didn't look like me. Um, It was this moment where then I looked down and I saw this sibling set of four and they, what looked like to me to be 100% Mexican. So I was like, "How? Oh, who is these children? And I would hear from the family members, there are little cousins, there are cousins, there are cousins. And no one was really diving deep into it until I pulled one of my other cousins aside who was a bit older and said, who are these children? And then come to find out um, that at that reunion, I had four uncles and aunts who were foster adoptive. Uh, parents and that they have been fostering and adopted longer than I have been alive. And at that moment, um, you know, something just felt so dark Um, and I had to pull out my phone and I pulled out my phone and I uh, GPS to the last foster home that I was in. And that foster home was exactly 58 miles away. And this is the moment where I really was like, you know, the system missed this. You know, all your life you hear, there's no placement for you. There's no family for you. As a teenager, you're hard to place. Behave so that you don't end up in a group home. And here were people who literally less than 60 miles away um, were not just biologically related, but that they took pride in actually caring for sibling sets and adopted sibling sets out of foster care.
1: I mean... That is a heartbreaking story. And, and I just want to say to anyone, if you've never spent time, you know, getting to know someone who's been in foster care, this is not a unique experience. And so, yeah, I, I, we we need to talk about Think of Us. And then I want to transition back to what you're doing to write this. So talk to us a little bit just about your organization. What was the impetus to found this organization? And what was your goal? Because you all have scaled and what you are doing on Capitol Hill to move policy that is actually going to have long-term effects that will re-architect the system is just wonderful. So start with the the inception story. We're dying to know it because I actually don't know it either.
2: Yeah. So um, Think of Us literally started from me making a commitment of action at the Clinton Global Initiative University. Um, So at that place, I wanted to make a commitment that I knew I could accomplish so I can come back um, because they did it every year. And uh, the first thing was to create a website that would just have videos on how to age out. Um, how were you prepared for that moment you turn 18 and you don't get adopted? You don't get um, to go back home. You don't find a forever family. You have to be prepared to have a job, to be able to pay your rent, to be able to be self-sufficient. And so the big problem that I saw as that young teenager and going into my 20s, it was that no one's telling me all the information. From having to budget to having to make sure I, I picked the right p- apartment. So we started there. And then, as you all could imagine, um, videos and just a website's not enough for an 18 or 21-year-old to be prepared. And that's when we decided, oh, we need to build an application. Let's build a web and mobile app that coaches young people to be able to build their own personal advisory board where they can interact with adults that are paid or unpaid in their life and actually say, here's my goal of getting getting into school, starting at this community college, starting at this four-year college. And we went on that journey of building that application. But as we built that application, we learned that there was so much more that needed to be changed about the system and that the fundamental design of the system was off. And that's when we started to lean into what does systems change look like? What is needed? And so now our 2.0 version of our organization, it feels like we are a laboratory for systems transformation. We get called into some of the hardest problems, and then we run at those hardest problems using technology, using data, but most importantly, centering actual people who've been through the experience and understanding what frontline staff are thinking, understanding what the system is thinking, and together taking that 360-degree perspective and being able to say, okay, now let's go take action with Congress. Let's go take action with the White House. Let's go take action with the federal agency. So we're acting as this feedback loop to those who are making decisions about the design of the child welfare system and saying, here's the data that you need before you make that decision. And so for the inception of, you know, since the inception of foster care, we have been using paid professionals or people who have volunteered and raised their hand to say, I want to become a foster parent and and and, and end up being reimbursed to do that. Um, but we realized that less than 33% of young people were being placed with kin, with relatives. And we said, when we look at the data and we look at the actual um, research The evidence is there that being placed with a family leads to better outcomes. You're more connected to school. You're more connected to the workforce later. You have the support you need for those big moments in life. And so um, we're leaning into that. And right now we are leaning into things like how is it that we figure out what are the supports that relatives need? In California, we run a statewide program helping relatives who are taking in uh, um, their family member to go ahead and get a housing voucher or be able to understand what resource around therapy and mental health is available. And not just like telling them it, but actually putting hands on keyboard and doing the paperwork for them and submitting that paperwork and following up with that, um, that provider so that then families get what they need.
0: It's just so beautiful. And I think it's, it's only could happen through the power of you channeling your personal experience that knows what it's like to be on the other side of that. And y'all have become really a force. I mean, a force for good in just this research aspect and this, which I'll call like the development lab. And I think it's fascinating. And, you know, this season, I would say one of the undercurrents of a lot of our conversations has been about nonprofits have power and we have the power to influence really big systemic problems. And y'all are living that out real in real time. So I'd love for you to talk about what does that look like in, in really trying to do this research and amassing this huge database that gives you leverage to get into these conversations, to make big change happen.
2: There are two types of way we've been dealing with data. Some of it's in the um, tens of thousands of people tell us stuff. And then we aggregate what they said, the open-ended questions, the multiple choice questions, and we literally take the aggregated data, right? We put it all together, and then we go to the different um, folks in the federal ecosystem, whether it be the White House, whether it be Congress or the federal agency, and share that. But then we're also doing participatory research, where we actually have people with lived experience um, in foster care teaming up with um, researchers and From beginning to end, from the very beginning of scoping the questions, we're leaning in and being able to go ahead and then throughout the actual executing of the research, working hand in hand with people who've had these experiences to get information. And so last year, we um, went on a journey to understand what are the experiences of young people in group homes? And did young people believe that group homes should be eliminated? Because we see such, um, we see a body of research pointing to that it's not the best place for young people to thrive in, um, when there's no medical condition, when it's being used as placement and replacement of family and so forth. And so we went on that journey and ended up um, producing a report called Away from Home. And in this report, we have 11 chapters of what are some of the experiences that young people were going through. Themes like um, young people feeling like they were being punished, that it was carceral, um, that they experienced many types of abuses that range from physical restraints to all the way to sexual um, abuse. The um, young people witnessing other very traumatic um, incidents such as suicide of, of their peers and so forth. And so we took this research and we then shared it with states. And as a result, you know, sharing it in partnership with the Annie E. Casey Foundation and the Casey Family Programs, um, we actually had 22 states raise their hand and say, enough is enough, and that we have to either eliminate or dramatically reduce the use of group homes and residential facilities. And right now, um, in partnership with our two foundations, um, we are literally on the ground in six different jurisdictions, working with those jurisdictions to get to zero. Um trying to really explore how is it that instead of a young person literally being placed in a facility that can cost literally around a thousand dollars a day a thousand dollars a day how might we place that young person with a family member or a foster parent who the system ends up training and supporting and putting paid professionals that are coming to that house and maybe that those paid professionals are coming every day but that family is still as possible and that those are the better outcomes for young people.
0: Hey friends, this episode is presented by Virtuous and they just happen to be one of our favorite companies. Let me tell you why. You know we believe everyone matters and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you see and activate donors at every level. And here's the thing, Virtuous created a fundraising platform to help you do just that. It's much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous is committed to helping charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, which is simply putting the donor at the center of fundraising growing giving through personalized donor journeys, and by helping you respond to the needs of every individual. We love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sound like Virtuous may be a fit for your organization? Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes.
1: Hey friends, are you ready to take your digital engagement to the next level, but kind of feel stuck about where to start? Let us introduce you to Feather. Feather is an amazing tech startup focused on making nonprofit outreach more impactful by connecting you to your audience, wherever they are online. From fundraising to program awareness, they've got you covered. And rather than tell you, we just wanted to show you. For years, the Humane Society of North Central Florida has participated in a local online giving day called the Amazing Give. It's a competitive landscape for donations. So in 2021, the Humane Society knew they needed to stand out in order to maximize donations. For $300 in ad spend, their retargeting ads brought 119 visitors to their Amazing Give donation page and generated nearly $6,000 in donations in just one day. With Feather, a small amount of ad spend can go a long way. Learn more about their solutions for nonprofits at feather.co. That's feather without the last E dot co. Now let's get back to this amazing conversation. I just love your story of innovation and you don't, you don't see things with walls at all. And I, I just love that you've brought up this concept of group homes and just how how deeply it needs to be reworked, that entire system. We had that conversation with Michelle Bain over at Youth Empowering Youth. And I and it really leads me to this question of power dynamics. And it's something I want to talk to you about. How do you start to shift the power dynamics as you reimagine the child welfare system? I mean, I can imagine it is just fraught with where it feels like the child has so little power and think of us as really doing an incredible job of bridging the divide between policy And practice and people. So, can you share a little bit more about the impact of shifting power dynamics in this system and what you all are doing to try to elevate the voice of that child and make sure that they are empowered and vibrant?
2: When I think about shifting power, one of the things that becomes clear to me is that those who have the power to make decisions, whether they're a commissioner, a social worker, a judge, a lawyer, these are all individuals that affect the life of a young person in foster care that they want to do a good job, that they want to do the right thing. And that so much of what goes on is that you just don't have the right information. And the right information might mean that at the case level, for example, like in my story, is that the paperwork that you got says that I have no viable resource for transfer, a transfership of guardianship or to family. And so then a judge and a worker makes, you know, actions and decisions based on thinking that there's nothing to explore there. So imagine if that was a different story for the congressperson, um, the person who is working, who who can do things at the federal agency. Sometimes they're just so disconnected and so far away from um, young people's experiences and those of, of folks who are on the ground that they just need a little bit of support to actually understand what are those experiences? What's the experiences of not just the young people and the families, but also of the system trying to help and where is it's fundamentally broken. And the better that we can understand those um, problems and the nuances of people's experiences, the more equipped then a person's able to make better decisions. And so making decisions in the absence of the right information and uh, the full story Ends up, choices ends up being passed. And those choices end up feeling sometimes very oppressive because it starts to um, move the ball forward, possibly in the wrong direction. Or sometimes it's at the right direction-ish, but not enough where you're actually having the impact that you're looking to have.
0: So, so I just love that, you know, right before you jumped into that answer, you're like, you know, the people here are all trying to do the right thing. And I just think there's power in seeking the good. And I do think Mm -hmm. that there is good people that just need to be activated and equipped. And I think y'all are leaning into that and there's a lot of power in that posture. And so I just kind of commend you for that too. I mean, what's your dreams? Like what is next? Where do you want to go um, with this thing that you have kind of pushed up this mountain, you know, and uh, we want to see it flying down the other side. What's next on the horizon?
2: You know, I think when people ask about child welfare and what's next, there's so many people who are caught up in the argument of like, do you abolish it? Do you reform it? And, you know, I think that those are conversations, there's another conversation to have, which is when stuff hits the fan in a young person in a family's life, and it kind of takes you on the pathway of you might not be able to thrive as much as you would be able to because the presence of neglect or the presence of abuse, right? How is it that an interaction with this system actually helps you heal, actually helps you develop the right skills that position your thrive? So I'm crazy enough to believe that, you know, with a lot of work that we actually can have a system that when you engage with it, it's not an indication of bad things happening in the future, but it's an indicator that things are now back on track. That you have gotten the support you need to heal from the trauma that you um, experience. That you're not experiencing new traumas within the system because of how it's structured. That you're able to actually say, wow, I used to have this skill level, this mindset, these the abilities, but look at where I am now. And I do believe that, you know, we can get government to work better for families and young people, and it's going to take a lot of leaning in. It's going to take a lot of work, but it's possible.
1: I mean, you just keep choosing that path less traveled. That's what I just keep feeling. I just see you back at the bus stop, like listening to your gospel music, getting centered and saying, why are things this way? Because they could be an entirely different way. And that's what I think is so powerful about your organization and having that level of forethought and idealism. I mean, we call ourselves ridiculous idealists, and we think that it's a hundred percent possible, if we can lean into this, and I and I want to compliment you on something that you've done that you were, that you've touched on just briefly, but you have a database of forty four hundred, at least the last time I talked, interviews with foster children, and you are able to identify. The thing, you know, markers for them. Where have they been? You have such incredible primary data that when you go to funders, when you go to Capitol Hill, when you go, you know, to local government, it's not just, you know, the aggregate data that you're putting out there. You have the voice, you have thousands of voices asking for change. And to me, that is just so powerful. And we are just, Absolutely rooting for you. So I want to pivot just a little bit because I want you to talk about this Check for Us initiative that you all put together that we thought was so wickedly cool. And explain what it is a little bit to us and talk about... How you were able to use? I mean, Congress released about four hundred million in emergency funding to benefit current and foster and former foster youth um, during the COVID pandemic, and you all did this national outreach campaign, and it was just unbelievable. Please talk to us about that.
2: Yeah. So during the pandemic, one of the things that we realized is that youth were being still kicked out of the system. They were aging out while everyone was expected to shelter in place. And so us, along with other advocates, went to Congress and said, hey, we need some extra support for foster youth. And Congress respectfully said, well, there's a lot of people who need support right now and we just issued stimulus checks. So what is so different about foster youth that you need a separate intervention? And so that's when we put out a a cash grant opportunity to foster youth. And we got 27,000 people at that point to be able to respond to it and give us information about what were their needs, how they had been affected. And we were able to take that data and share a report back to Congress, to Senate Finance Committee, and other members to say, here's what we um, learned. Here's what we've learned about the need, and this is why the need is so important. So many foster youth did not get the stimulus check because they didn't have, um, you know, they recently aged out and didn't file their taxes. They were eighteen, nineteen, twenty. You know, they had experiences of not having their documentation because they had moved from foster home to foster home to foster home. So how can you do your taxes without an ID? A Social Security card or even a birth certificate. You know, there were no identif- identifying documents. And so the first thing that happened was that that passed. But while we were helping to get that passed, you know, we work with both um, parties and we're very bipartisan and, and engaging people. And one of our um, colleagues on the Republican side said, You know, Sixto, I want to ask you the real question Will the actual money ever get to the young people? And that was such a profound statement. And I looked at him and I said, yes, it will. And, you know, little did I know that it would actually require us to, like, launch a national outreach campaign because I wanted to keep my word to him. He had went and did a lot of calling of, of people on the Hill to make sure that, like, this had um, they had knew the importance of passing this. And so three months into um, Congress passing this money, not a dollar had been spent. And so we were like, we're gonna have to figure out how to help. And so it took us working with the federal agency. It took us reaching out to all states. It took us um, understanding what the states need. They needed social media kits, they needed the emails. They were so boggled down with the pandemic that someone needed to help them do the work. And so we got in there, we stood up a team, we helped all, we wrote content for all the states, we reached out to young people. All over the country, we found thirty thousand young people and connected them back to um, the states so that they can get their pandemic relief. We turned around and built one national portal that took all that people can come to one place, one website, either apply on our on our site, or if the state had their own site, that then they could then just go ahead and apply. Um, we linked them to their state site. So we're talking literally forty four states. We were transferring personal, identifiable, confidential information to. We were helping to get out the word. We were running National Day of Actions. We ran State-Level Day of Actions to make it happen um, because we knew the importance that this moment was not just about Um, pointing to what was wrong and saying, hey, these folks are not moving, I didn't want to go back to Congress and tell Congress, hey, uh, states are not doing what they have to do. The federal agency is not doing what they have to do. I wanted to go back to Congress and say, we spent the money. And if that meant that we needed to put boots on the ground in every state, then we were going to do just that. And we were so happy that Jack Dorsey was the one to get like blindly trust us and say, I'm gonna give you this bucket of money, build a team, go get go get the teams to support these states so that then you can run. And that's what we did. With four hundred and eighty thousand dollars, we were able to build up teams. We were able to literally respond to this and leverage millions of dollars that went straight into the pockets of young people that prevented them from being homeless. I'll give one stat. Four thousand three hundred and seventy young people accessing homelessness services for one night cost nine point six million dollars. We knew from the young people we were connected to that there were at least there there are over four thousand young people who spent you know over a hundred nights homeless, right, and accessing these services. For those 4,370 young people who spent 100 nights of homelessness, that's a, that's $96 million, almost $100 million in services that are responsive to put a temporary Band-Aid and not actually solve the problem. And so we knew that, you know, leaning deep into this moment meant that we could be very – that it would – bring a lot of support to not only just actually help the individual, but that counties and states just can't afford to actually take on that cost in the middle of such a big uh, economic disruptive moment.
0: I just see the values that we uphold around here just threaded through your story, like from every part of your journey. But I think about, you know, People would think, oh, you reached the pinnacle, you got this money unlocked, but you're like, you see that this gap was happening in in -hmm. in actually getting into the right hands, and y'all activated. If this number is right, thirty thousand of your past alumni to get on the streets and like be active in this campaign. And I just think if like you went to your believers, the people that believe in this mission and activated them, and this conversation is all about that. And you just, I would encourage anybody to go to your website and get lost in it because. The more that we all know, I think there's a lot you can learn and apply for whatever mission you're perpetuating and get inspired by the work that they're doing and get involved as a donor too, because this is the kind of work that really is shaping by just activating so many people around the issue. So thank you for telling that story. What a cool momentum. So, okay, here we believe in the power of philanthropy. We talk about it every day and Becky and I are giddy to hear how philanthropy has shaped your personal story. Could you take us back and tell us a story of when you've really seen the power of philanthropy and And I know it happens all the time, but something that's really resonated with you, big or small.
2: There are some moments where we've gotten like the million dollar call, right? And like someone is giving us a million dollars. And those are profound moments. And there are some of these moments where um, they're just pivotal. There was, you know, when I first was having this idea, Patrick McCarthy at the time was the CEO of Annie Casey Foundation. And I walk in as this young 23-year-old kid and I'm like, I have a vision and here's what I think we can do. And so he gives us our first grant of $75,000, right? And this was the moment where I walked in and I was like, Okay, now what do I do? And the first thing I knew to do was to make it real for others. And so I rented the extra space of a fast food Chinese shop. And so this is where I had the beginning (laughs) team members (laughs) because I was like, if you can create walls, people will come, you know? Um, The second (laughs) moment I think about is, you know, uh, the Pritzker Foster Care Initiative. Um, You know, I was in a like, got to meet them and I had this vision that we would go ahead and bring this issue of technology and being empowered and having data and ha- being having people with you know who experience it at the center, and actually not just do a regular briefing at the White House, but that we should have a hackathon, that we should stay up all night at the White House and literally come up with solutions on the spot, and you know, the Pritzkers leaned in and funded that, you know, and that was just a $30,000 seed (laughs) that had this ripple effect that months later, we find ourselves literally in the White House, staying up all night, actually coding (laughs) and developing solutions. So to me, when I think about giving, it is energy. It's never about the amount, but it's about the energy that you are sowing into some possibility. And so I... I am so deeply honored for all of the investments, whether it be, you know, at the hundred dollar level or whether it is at the million dollar level. Each of those things are funding something that we are able then to catalyze and do. And so I really just appreciate that. And I appreciate, you know, working with foundations who um, sometimes also are very strategic in their action plan and how we align to it and say, OK, we want you to get this result so that then our other colleague can get this result and then we can get this result and start moving the needle. Um, so I love fundraising. We're looking for a director of development right now uh, to support I am, uh, me and the managing partner love to fundraise and lean in. And so, uh, if there's anybody looking, uh, to, to generate more energy, um, for the type of outcomes that we want to, uh, feel free to check us out. It is a remote position and it's a position that's structured to spend time with me and the managing partner to support us because there's so much that's incoming and how do we execute it all, how do we create a great experience for the varieties of donors on multiple level is something that we want to lean into. So very much a director of development role that's supportive, that you know, I love to raise money. Um so you'll never get a problem there. The managing partner likes to raise money, and it's about how we work as a team to execute it all.
1: Oh my gosh, what a a dream dream job. I'm just putting that out there in the We Are For Good ecosystem. If this speaks to you, please connect with Think Of Us, connect with Sixto. We'll drop all of that contact information in a second, but love that you connected that back. And who else would take a White House sleepover and turn it into like (laughs) an incubator (laughs) for change? That is such a brilliant idea. Um, Sixto, we just love you and love the way you look at life, um, you're so hopeful and joyful and passionate. And, and I feel this tenacity and there's like no slowing down for you. And I, you know, we ask all of our guests about what is one good thing you could offer up to our community? It could be a bit of advice, a life hack. What would you offer?
2: Oh, wow. If I could offer one good thing is the reminder to stay in joy. I think that, you know, when you're doing hard work, And especially during this time where life itself is stretching each and every single one of us, especially as some states and some communities transition um, out of COVID. um, I just think that the importance of centering joy in your life so that you remain happy and you're able to give and you're able to be able to do good. When we're depleted, it's just very difficult to be able to show up for others. And so what I would offer to folks is being centered in um, not doing aftercare is what I call it. Like you hit the wall <laughs> and and now you have to go ahead and do some self-care. That's more like aftercare. But on the journey of being in service, how is it that you're replenishing yourself that you are able to go ahead and center yourself in joy so that you show up as your best self as you're in service to others?
1: We just heard oh, the man. 6 dose secret sauce. Right there.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say it like just exudes out of you from the second we've gotten to connect and every interaction we've heard about you. So you live that. This has been amazing. Would you connect us, connect your community to all the ways that y'all show up online? How can people find you and
2: find think of us? Definitely. So you can find me personally at Sixtel X T O cancel C-A-N-C-E-L on Facebook, on Instagram, I'm I'm there a lot. And then our website is www.thinkof-us.org. That's www.thinkof-us.org us.org and you can come on there we have a contact form Uh, we respond pretty quickly Um, and so feel free to check out the job applications that we have check out our donate page um, and check out our projects you know look at the projects that are there Uh, we have a we've spent a lot of time actually um, pouring into how to communicate our projects to the world so that other people can take what works for them and run with it.
1: I feel totally jazzed right now. Like I've got my boxing gloves on. You've got some warriors here that want to help you up in this system and just so proud of your efforts and we'll be rooting for you and just alongside you as allies the entire way.
2: Well, I I feel seen. I I feel truly blessed to be here. And more importantly, you know, to the families that have stood up and taken in their relative, to the foster families and adoptive families, just a quick shout out to all of you and to the young people who, you know, have experienced these Experiences, um, you know, we will get to a better day, and it is being on, um, being able to share this narrative so that people know and people get activated, and that change is inspired. Like that's how we're going to get there. So, thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Too.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode was brought to you by our good friends at Auth Zero. With Auth Zero, your nonprofit can do more with a login box. Greet prospects and rabid fans of your mission with authenticity. Simply make it easier for your team to manage data. There's so much at Auth0 Login Experience can do. Visit Auth0.org for more info.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, we know you'll love being part of the We Are For Good community. It's like our own social network where you can find like-minded friends, ask questions, share resources, and find inspiration anytime. Sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello.
0: Thanks, friends.